Welcome to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. Today, we're going to be talking about adoption subsidies for those who adopt from foster care. Uh, negotiating these subsidies, that's an important topic. Uh, who's eligible? We're going to cover it all today with Josh Kroll. He is the project coordinator of the Adoption Subsidy Resource Center at the North American Council on Adoptable Children. Welcome, Josh, to Creating a Family. We are so glad to have you. Thank you. Glad to be back. We are going to be talking uh, today about adoption subsidies. What, at the beginning, let's talk about what are, what do we mean by adoption subsidies? So when people talk about adoption subsidies, it usually includes at least one, if not all three of these uh, supports. Um, one is an ongoing financial uh, support paid generally monthly that people call adoption subsidy, adoption assistance, AAP, lots of different names, stipend, maintenance, per diem. Um, that's the first part. The second part is um, Medicaid, um, and that generally comes in almost all circumstances. And then the last one is the reimbursement of non-recurring adoption expenses. And that can be um, often um, fully for attorney fees, but it also could help with other costs that are uh, for the adoption process. And by that last one, reimbursement of non-recurring adoption expenses, that one is not an ongoing monthly. That is intended for um, the the actual adoption itself. Am I correct there? Correct. Okay. So, excellent. And and we should also mention, although certainly not the the topic uh, of this course, would be uh, you're also eligible for the uh, adoption tax credit, the federal adoption tax credit. Um, we have other courses on that, and, and uh, uh, NACAC, North American Council on Adoptable Children, has lots of information on that as well. Uh, so all of those, so that's just throwing that out there as, as another thing to be thinking about. All right. Is there, well, first of all, who is eligible for adoption, well, all of these adoption subsidies, the financial, the Medicaid, uh, and the reimbursement? So the state... The states administer the program, and in some states, the states delegate it down to the counties, um, but the states set the rules um, on who is eligible. And it's designed for children in the public foster care system, um, although some private um, domestic adoptions could be eligible. Um, and it's going to vary greatly from state to state. It's for children who are considered hard to place or special needs. And what that is in each state um, varies a lot. All right. Now, um, the I'm sure everyone's ears have immediately perked up when they think that private domestic infant adoption might be eligible. In the states, and, and I heard what you said, that it's, it's only in some states. Uh, and when the states that it is allowed... What is that just any adoption or is it only adopting of a, adoption of a child that they consider special needs? For the private domestic adoptions, um, those children typically are going to have to be either SSI eligible prior to finalization, and then the family will have to apply in their state of residency, even if the child's placed from another state, um, and then get approved. And there are ways that states um, have created some hurdles, um, maybe intentionally, maybe not intentionally to make it even more challenging to do it. It's no state will categorically say that a private domestic's not eligible, but they definitely can make it more challenging. Um, and then the other population is children who receive title four E that's federal funding, Title IV adoption assistance in a previous adoption. So like if I adopted a child and my adoption dissolves or I, I pass away and Don, you decide to adopt that child and that child, I got Title IV adoption assistance, that child wouldn't have to reenter the foster care system. You could just do a straight attorney adoption of that child. But since you live in North Carolina, you're going to have to apply for adoption assistance with the state of North Carolina um, for that readoption. So the, the adoption assistance, are you telling me, doesn't follow the child? So, so, so Billy uh, was adopted in Illinois, and and, and Billy uh, uh, Billy's adoptive parents 
have adoption assistance from the state of Illinois. That adoption dissolves. Billy is readopted from, uh, let's say, a family in New York. Uh, would the original adoption assistance that was being provided by the state of Illinois follow Billy into this, into his new home or not? Nope. They would have to apply in the new one. There are a handful of states, I think off the top of my head, the ones I can think of, New York, New Jersey, Minnesota, I think on a time-limited basis in Nebraska may extend it even after um, like an adoptive parent's death. Um, but in, in most cases, it would terminate in the situation you described. So it doesn't follow the child per se. It's, it, it is to the family, which seems kind of counterintuitive. But Well, they're, they're parties to the contract. And if, they're, yeah. you know, if their parental rights have terminated, that's grounds for it to end. That makes sense because there's a contract that, between yeah. the parents and the state. You had said that the uh, it, in some states it may be possible for a child adopted not through foster care, a child adopted privately, to get adoption assistance if they're SSI eligible. So what do you mean by SSI eligibility? Um, so the Social Security Administration for people with severe disabilities that don't have a work record, which are children, they don't have work records, um, you know, they Lady, can apply. Lazy the, little the, bums. Yeah, the, <laughs> the, the, the families or the, uh, um, or the agencies, and oftentimes it's easier if it's the agencies, can apply for supplemental security income based on the disabilities of the child. Um, com- common ones you might see in, in um, our world of um, adoption, uh, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, maybe spina bifida. Um, Down syndrome is probably the most common one I, I hear of. Um, but those are things that if they're able to get SSI for the child before finalization, um, then they can apply for um, adoption assistance with them, with the state that they live in, the adoptive parents. All right. Is there an income limit for receiving the adoption subsidy? Let's say a family you know, makes a very good income. Uh, and, and doesn't technically, and I'm using air quotes here, need uh, the subsidy in order to support the child, um, would they be eligible? Technically, yes, except there's, it, it's complicated, <laughs> like everything in life. Um, yeah. It's complicated. Yes. So there's there's two types of adoption subsidy. There's the federally funded one, which means the state's getting reimbursed a portion of the dollars. And then there's the non-FORI, which the state is paying all of it, or in some states, the county and the state are paying some of it. Um, the federally one, they cannot means test. They can't say, you, you know, Bill Gates technically could adopt a child and get adoption assistance, you know. Um, but um, and the, the one exception is there are two states um, for the non-4E children, um, Louisiana and Ohio, do means test their state program. So if you have a kid who's non-4E eligible in Louisiana or Ohio, there is an income test for the families. Um, in Ohio, it's a pretty high amount. It's not, it's not too bad. I think it's 110 or 130% of median income. Um, and it's based on family size, but in, in Louisiana, it's pretty low, but there can be exceptions that can go up to the state office to over, overrule that. But where, where families of more comfortable incomes will probably run into a bigger issue is, um, in the states that negotiate the rate. Some states provide what the child was getting in foster care or a, a similar amount and there's a maximum rate and families are just, this is what the most we can offer the child. Will you take it? And the family says yes. But in other states, um, they look at the family's resources. They look at the child's needs. And um, and and in those states, they'd be more likely to get a lower amount, not get nothing, but be offered a, a substantially lower um, monthly amount. Okay, well, that, that begs the, you know, the, I guess, $64 million question. Or, or not that anybody should be expecting that. However, that begs the yeah. bigger question, which is, how is the dollar amount of the subsidy determined? And by whom? Um, it's going to be determined on the state that is providing the adoption subsidy. So for kids in the foster care system, it's the foster care system the child is in. 
So, um, you know, I'm in Minnesota. If I adopt little Billy from Illinois, I don't look at Minnesota's rate structure and I don't look at Minnesota's eligibility criteria. I look at Illinois because Billy's in Illinois foster care. Um, if um, Billy is a child with Down syndromes and being pr placed privately with me and gets SSI, um, you know, I'm applying here in Minnesota, then I look at Minnesota's rate structure and Minnesota's um, eligibility criteria. So, so does the state ahead. have it set that, okay, um, all children at this age with this level of need get X amount or all the families of children uh, that meet those criteria get X amount and it's a not, is it a non-negotiable? It is a set amount that it is determined written down somewhere in state law or is it a little fuzzier as to the amount? Um, most states have pretty concrete rate structures for foster care, and that's generally the guideline for adoption subsidy. So um, most states have a system set up like you described. So there's usually a, a basic rate, um, and that could be for a child without very many issues. Um, and that may have a, a different amount based on what age they are. And then they may have... Um, what's called a level, a difficulty of care, specialized, um, lots of different terms, CANs, um, you know, that could provide more based on the specific needs of a child. So like if I have a sibling group of two, I might have one child who's getting a basic rate because they don't generally have many needs, but their sibling has significant needs and might be getting a much higher amount. And what happens is those amounts generally are the ceiling on what the adoption assistance can be. Um, and in states that offer the same rates and don't make you negotiate, that's what the child is going to be looking at um, in support um, once they're adopted. Um, some other states have structural um, uh, lower limits. Um, in Minnesota, children adopted under the age of six will get half of their foster care rate. That's in our state law. Um, in Washington state, kids, they negotiate, but it's up to 80% for kids zero to four or five. And then up to nine, it's 95%. And then 10 to 18, it's 95% of the foster care rate. Um, so it, it really depends on the state and how they structure things. So how can parents find out, assuming they may or may not be a foster parent at the time, how can they find out how much they would be eligible for or their well, child would, would be eligible? I would definitely suggest they go visit the NACAC website, which is NACAC.org, and check out our list of state uh, profiles. Um, you know, there's a at a glance, which just gives a sort of a summary of different rates, basic rates at different ages. Um, but what folks would really want to do, if they're interested in a specific child from a specific state, or if they're adopting privately and they think they might adopt a private, um, a child with special needs that might get SSI, they'd want to look at their specific state. Um, and we have state profiles for each state. And generally, it's I think it's question four and five have the information on the rates um, and may have some details on um, even what qualifies children for certain rates, depending on the state. Yes, it's a great resource. That would be NACAC, N-A-C-A-C dot org. Um, all right. So who, you say, depending on the needs of the child, it may go up or down. Who makes a decision on the needs of the child? Is that based on if the child is actively in therapy? Um, is it dependent upon uh, behavior? What is it dependent upon? It's, um, I mean, level of foster home can be part of it, but really it should be based on the needs of the child. I mean, this is all about the child, you know, and the reason I, I highlight that is sometimes people talk about themselves in asking if the child's eligible and it really shouldn't be about themselves. And I want to highlight it, especially for relatives, relatives, you know, because there are a lot of kinship providers, um, they can be eligible for this being grandpa or auntie or whatever doesn't disqualify the child's eligibility um, for adoption assistance. So th those higher rates can be the physical disabilities, which are generally pretty obvious to people, but um, a lot of the children in care have um, 
had a lot of trauma, may have experienced abuse or neglect, both which are very traumatic and often, um, sad to say, have behavioral issues. And those are definitely a factor in higher rates. But but if the child is not actively in therapy, what does what do the negotiators, what do the social workers, what do they rely on in determining that if the child is is if the child is in therapy, if the child is not in therapy, is there needs to be a report by the therapist? Is it a report by the parents on what they're seeing? How do they know? It's going to depend on the state. Um, I mean, majority of kids that qualify for this are adopted from the foster care system, and there are high numbers adopted by the foster parents. But for those who aren't, I mean, they're probably going to have that information. If you're not already fostering this child, um, they're going to have that information available um, that's to you. But it really depends on how the state reports, you know, determines things. I mean, another thing um, that some states do um, they factor in the time the parent spends with the child. Like here in Minnesota, you know, they use a term, I don't know if they still use it anymore, but in the past they used it, activities of daily living based on the child's age. You know, if you've got a eight-year-old that still can't get themselves dressed in the morning and you got to spend time being on top of that, um, you know, that's something that may factor into a, a little higher rate than just the basic rate. Um but that's stuff that, you know, that that someone has to be reporting on. I mean, this is, you know, it's government. Everything has to be recorded um, to justify these higher rates. So does it behoove a foster parent who is considering adopting or anyone who is considering adopting from uh, foster care to be thinking in terms of, of making a case for why the child's needs are, what the child actually needs. And again, I, I will go back to stressing what you're saying. This is not about mercenary foster parents trying to get everything they could possibly get just, you know, so they can go sit around and eat bonbons or go to the Caribbean or something. Right. This is for, because there is a concern that the child will need care and they want to be able to provide the care for the child. So should they be, um, making notes, talking with the child's therapist, uh, uh, whomever, uh, teachers or whatever, as to what others are seeing as far as the child's needs? As a foster parent, I would, if I'm new, I would talk to experienced foster parents in my area and talk about what my child's needs are and talk about, hey, this is the rate the child's getting now. Does this seem appropriate to you? You know, because there's a lot of experience. There's also a lot of human factor in how things are done. I mean, there isn't a state in this country where there, you know, it probably depends how something is written up can make a difference yeah. between one rate or another. Um, and, and so I would definitely focus on that. And, you know, if you've got a younger child um, that's starting to present some things, but no one's diagnosed it yet, I would see if I could get a diagnosis in case that increases the ceiling for the child. Um, most states, um, families can renegotiate adoption assistance. So, you know, when you've got a really young child that no one wants to make a diagnosis, that's not going to be a really big issue. But, um, you know, it's, it's sometimes the negotiation process isn't fun. So <laughs> you might want to try and get as much done as you can. But, I mean, if you've got a kid that's under three that's qualifying – they may um, they may not really want to do any diagnosis yet until the kid's school age. I mean, that's a, a real big issue that families face. Let me pause here to uh, remind everyone that you are listening to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. And today we're talking with Josh Kroll with the North American Council on Adoptable Children, and we're talking about adoption subsidies for adoptions primarily through foster care. This show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Jockey Bing Family. Calling all adoption agencies, they want you to know that it is one of the services that they provide is to uh, is their backpack program. And in this wonderful, cute, customized backpack, it is initialed with the child's name. Um, they, uh, they parents get material. The child, of course, gets material. It gets, the child gets the backpack. It gets an adorable little bear and a blanket. Uh, but inside, also, there is a tote bag, and it's full of parenting resources. 
for the parents themselves to help them transition into uh, adoption. And this is open to all adoptions, uh, regardless whether they're from uh, international or domestic or foster care. Uh, So if you know of a family who is adopting or if you are a family who is adopting and would like for your agency to participate, contact Jockey Being Family. Just go to their website, probably the easiest thing, which is jockeybeingfamily.com. And you can click on their uh, backpack program and there's a place for the agency to register. So pop over there and make sure you are you're doing that because it's a great resource. Uh, I'm glad you raised the issue, Josh, uh, about situations where the child is either too young to be displaying needs or to be diagnosed or is not displaying the need, but the parents have reason to believe that the child may have needs as they age. A, a common scenario is um, it would be prenatal exposures. There, either the child was uh, born dependent or not, uh, because we know that the impact of, of prenatal exposures is not necessarily connected to whether or not the child uh, was born dependent. Uh, Needle-natal abstinence syndrome is present or not. So, but that parents may know that the birth mom uh, used alcohol or drugs through her pregnancy and have reason to believe uh, that the child may be impacted. But at this point, it's too young because honestly, some of those impacts do not show until school age. So, what's a parent to do then when they want to be proactive to make certain that they can provide services as soon as possible uh, for their child? Um, But at this point, they have no reason. The child's too young. Uh, And they don't want to have to renegotiate because that's hard. And and you don't have much bargaining. You you know, it's your child at that point, and you don't have much bargaining power on the renegotiation. So what should parents do then to try to make certain that, that there is something, even if they don't want it now, they just want it there to get without having to go through the renegotiation? Is that possible? Well, there are quite a few states that provide um, what they call zero dollar deferred or dormant, or they might use other terms, high risk agreements. And those provide zero dollars. So if the child's not meeting any other category, because I just want to mention that it's not just disabilities, but also there can be an age component. It's as low as one for little Billy in Illinois um, to as high as 12 in Kansas and a couple states without an age component and siblings being adopted. So if I'm adopting a kid um, who was prenatally exposed with their sibling, that child more likely than not is going to be eligible for adoption subsidy because they're being adopted as a sibling group. But let's say it's a child that isn't being adopted with a sibling, hasn't met the age criteria, um, and otherwise isn't meeting any other of the the state's criteria. Some states also still have um, race as a criteria. Um, and so these the states, and there's quite a few of them, it's uh, probably, I would guess, at least half. I should do a summary at some point. Um, but quite a few states have these $0 agreements that basically they say, here, you have an adoption assistance agreement. It gives you no monthly payment. Most of the time it's going to give Medicaid um, and and probably the non-recurring. Um, and what that does is it provides that safety net so that if later on problems arise when the, you can start making diagnosis and, and things are starting to show up, you can then go back to the state and say, you know, my child now has X, Y, or Z. We need to get the monthly payment started. Um, and so that's, um, it's a great safety net. And then, you know, States are doing it to make the process easier to go back mm-hmm. and and provide that help. Um, so th- that's what I would encourage um, in our profiles question. I believe it's it's seven or eight. I think it's eight on our each state profile addresses that. Um, does the state provide such an agreement? And it is certainly something to consider. And if you never need it, then fine. It just never comes into effect. But if uh, third grade, you say, for instance, third grade, you start seeing that your child is really struggling with some of the higher level thinking skills that kick in at that point and is falling behind and you're wanting to hire a tutor or 
wanting to put them in a uh, special school for kids with learning differences or whatever, um, that we, that's at the time you might be able to go back and uh, reinstitute the, the change it from a zero dollar to a whatever the the state offers uh, for children with that uh, with that need. The one thing I will highlight on there, there are some states that specifically say the thing that activates it has to be something that they could tie to before the adoption. You know, so like if if I get into a car accident with little Billy and he now is in a wheelchair, that's not going to qualify. But if they determine that he's on the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, but no one ever knew that mom was drinking – then, you know, that would qualify because that clearly predated the adoption. So that's just a little wrinkle that some states have. Yeah, I would think that would be the standard one. So the the challenge for the parent is to make certain with the diagnosis that the um, if they have this information and if they can get this diagnosis, that the child's struggles in the case we just mentioned might be connected to prenatal exposure or trauma or abuse or, or neglect or whatever it was the child may have experienced before. All right. Does the money have to be spent directly and solely on the foster child, or could it also be used to benefit the whole family or the foster child only tangentially, you know, such as adding on a bedroom so that the kids don't have to share um, or something along those lines? Uh, what can the money be used for? Um, pretty much for anything. The family has to financially support the child, but they're unlike Social Security Administration. Like if I'm the representative payee um, for someone who's getting Social Security benefits, I have to sh- document how I'm spending that money on that person. The adoption assistance does not require that. Um, and in federal law, it talks about um, it's to meet the needs of the child. In federal policy, it talks about ordinary and special needs of the child, including things like child care. Um, but uh, federal policy also says that there is no accounting the state can require of how exactly the money is spent, um, but to use it however the family feels is best to fit the child into the household. But they have to financially support the child. Can they... Can they co-meagle the money? Do they? Can they yeah. just take the money each month and put it into the general family banking account, and it's used for everything else that's you know the, all the other bills that come in? Is that possible as well? It is. Okay. Because it's it's technically a payment to the parents. Um, I actually had a case in the last couple of years in Wisconsin where a mom was saving it up in a general family fund, and then when they went to divorce, the uh, the divorcing spouse was uh, going after that money that had been saved up from the adoption subsidy payment. I don't know a way to fight that one, but I'm not an expert on on divorce (laughs) and asset splitting. Well, and that changes significantly by state too, but it sounds like in the case that you're familiar with, it was considered just part of the family money and did not follow the the child exclusively to the whichever parent that child was living with. Is that how that one turned out? Yeah. yeah. Hmm. I don't know if there if it's totally been resolved yet. Interesting. People don't always call me back, especially if it's bad news. So, <laughs> I mean, it's just reality. <laughs> yeah. It ends up I I uh, yeah I, I have limits in what I find out from people in the world. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess that matters. Uh, Can you give us an estimate uh, where the states range, knowing that there is some flexibility on how much, uh, depending on what state you're in, your child may be eligible for, knowing full well that you're saying that that the higher amounts usually go to older children, sibling groups with special, with uh, uh, diagnosed special needs? Uh, I mean, technically zero at the lower end. Um, you know, some states negotiate pretty low rates, um, even um, without the, you know, at-risk category. Um, there's probably um, definitely over a thousand in quite a few places for, you know, like medically fragile children. And in some places going to be over two, um, but not super common. There's... Uh, it's it's hard to say. It really depends on the specific state. Um, okay. But um, over a thousand is definitely, um, unless you're in a really, you know, high cost of living area, 
Um, and even some of those, it's not going to be that high, um, mm -hmm. you know, for a basic rate, um, it's, you know, eight or 900 is going to be the very top end for basic rates. Um, um, but more common, you know, anywhere from three to 500 for a basic rate in, in a lot of states. And, and like you point out, this is not intended to take away the cost of parenting and raising a child. It's supposed to be, as the name implies, a subsidy to help pay for the some of the added costs that this child might have by virtue of the fact of their experience in, in the foster care system. I mean, if you want, you can think of it as right now, this for the kids in foster care, the state is the legal parent, and it's like they're paying child support to the adoptive family. Because mm -hmm. the adoptive parent... Um, but for the adoption, the state would be continuing to pay for the child, all of the child's living expenses. And yeah. so, yeah. Okay. All right. You had mentioned that there were three, uh, we mentioned primarily three types of subsidies. One was the financial assistance. The second one you mentioned was uh, uh, Medicaid. And then the third one you mentioned was reimbursement of non-reincurring adoption expenses. Let's talk about Medicaid. Um, does Medicaid, do all states include, uh, automatically include children on who are adopted through foster care in coverage under Medicaid? No. So the kids who get Title IV-E adoption assistance in every state will get Medicaid, and that's even if they move to another state. Um, because that's one of the rules with that federal those federal dollars. Okay, so you get federal dollars. The kid has to and, and has an adoption assistance agreement. The kid um, is on Medicaid. You can't do anything about that. Okay, and if you have private insurance, you can make that um, secondary. You're not required to. I mean, as healthcare gets more expensive for families and individuals, sometimes it. You know, you don't want to put the child on your private insurance because of the how expensive it would be. Um, kids who receive non-4e adoption assistance, most states will provide Medicaid. I know off the top of my head, Alabama and Virginia, and, I, and there might be just a couple more. They require the child to have some sort of disability that warrants Medicaid for the non-4e kids. Um, so. If the kid gets adoption assistance because they're hard to place, um, but they're not 4E eligible, they may not get Medicaid in, in some of those states. The other place that it's um, messy with the non-4E kids is moving states. So if you get Medicaid from whatever state you live in or you're, you know, and you decide to move, um, you, you adopted a kid in your home state. Um, I'm in Minnesota. I adopted a kid in Minnesota and I decide I'm tired of Minnesota winter. So I'm going to move down to Florida because hurricanes seem easier. And what's, yeah, right. <laughs> I should joke about that to North Carolina, but, um, at least it seems warmer. Let's well, it yeah, it's definitely going to be warmer. Um, yeah. So I moved down to Florida. What I need to do in that situation is I need to contact the state of Minnesota. Um, in our state, we have specialists and tell them I'm moving so they can send the paperwork from St. Paul to Tallahassee and get Medicaid set up in the new state. So it's the interstate compact on adoption and medical assistance. And so whoever's paying the adoption subsidy, you need to contact them so they can send the paperwork over and get the Medicaid set up in the new state. Now, when it's 4E, not a problem, works in every state. When it's non-4E, all but four states will provide it. Well, it's sort of seven. Um, we'll start with the four states. There's four states that will not provide Medicaid to kids who get non-4E adoption sub subsidy from another state. And those states currently are Hawaii, Nevada, New Mexico, and Illinois. So those four states, if I'm in Minnesota, I adopt a non-4E kid and I moved to New Mexico... I'm not going to get Title IV-E. I'm not going to get Medicaid for that child. Um, if I moved to Arizona, I would. Um, now, Iowa, um, Pennsylvania, New York will do it for kids from all states except from those four states. So if I adopt a kid from New Mexico in Minnesota, I get non-4E subsidy. That kid will get Medicaid in Minnesota because Minnesota is awesome. But I then move to Illinois. Um, I won't get Medicaid in that state, or not Illinois, sorry, wrong state. I moved to Iowa. 
um, Iowa d- will not do it because it's a New Mexico kid, but they would for a Minnesota kid. So yeah, it's I mean, messy. They're saying, if you won't do it for our kids, we're not going to do it for you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So now that's, you're talking about. That's the messy part. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Um, so you're talking about children and the term you're using is non uh, title 40 eligible. What type of kids does that typically include? What kids would be eligible under their state, but for subsidies, but not from the federal subsidy under Title IV-E? So for kids to be Title IV-E eligible, they either have to be an infant born to a foster child who is receiving Title IV-E foster care payments that cover both the foster parent and the infant. That'd make the infant Title IV-E for adoption subsidy. Um, They're eligible for SSI. They were adopted um, previously and received Title IV-E adoption assistance in their previous adoption or they were found to be AFDC eligible, which is the old welfare program, Aid to Families with Dependent Children, um, that ended in 1996, but they still use those income guidelines. The states still do AFDC determinations in the month of removal. So those are the old ways. There are three new ways that started in 2009, and that is kids who've been in care more than five years, Um, Kids who are, at the time it was 16, now it's kids over the age of two, um, or um, kids who are being adopted with siblings who meet either been in care for five years or over the age of two. Um, And the age of two is going to be for a couple more years. Um, It had actually gone down to zero, but a federal law rolled back to age two. So if I'm adopting Billy and Billy's little sister, Sally, from Illinois, and they're not 4E because they didn't meet the AFC de- AFDC determination the month they were removed, um, but Billy is three now, Billy will be, Sally will be able to piggyback on Billy being three to make them both 4E eligible. So it's going to be a very small population, but it's still, um, it, there's still kids out there that would meet that situation. Who would not be 4E eligible. Correct. That, that's the Sorry. small population. Thank you for yeah. clearing. Yeah. The other, the other thing is um, to qualify for 4E, and this is very rare. I like, I partially, if, if it's not an issue, we don't hear calls, but there were two, two instances in 21 years of doing this where I've heard where the judicial determination was done wrong when the child was removed into foster care. And that invalidated the child's eligibility for 4E, regardless of that laundry list I just gave. But that's very rare because it's pretty, should be pretty boilerplate language by the Child Protection Services. Yeah, you would think so. And you'd also think if there was a mistake that that would be, you know, correct, it could be correctable. But I guess, like you say, that's the, the exception, not the rule. Okay. All right. So for Medicaid and the advantages to being under Medicaid, are uh, it's it's goods coverage and it's uh, and and the parents aren't having to pay for it. Are there other advantages or other things that are included in Medicaid that uh, well, depending on the, depending on how uh, what type of insurance the parents have, Medicaid might well be better. Um, so, are there other reasons that children would need would parents would want their kids on Medicaid? Um, from what I've heard, I'm not a health policy expert at all, but from what I've heard, it seems like a lot of children who have been in foster care have quite a few, um, behavioral issues, not all of them, thankfully, um, but quite a few do. And I believe private insurance tends to have more limits on how much mental health or counseling services you can get than Medicaid seems to. That's my impression. I don't know if you're familiar or not there. Um, it's certainly my impression as well, depending on, um, and it, you know, there are some phenomenal insurance plans out there and they seem to be for in larger companies that have more competitive workforces. And so they, they're, they have very uh, good health insurance uh, and, and it's uh, sometimes it's not terribly expensive to put children on them. So those would be the exception. But if you're buying your uh, insurance independently, you're darn right. It's more expensive to get. I mean, all of that can be, it's definitely more expensive the more you add, the better your coverage. 
Well, I mean, the other thing is, I mean, if you have your child on private insurance, sometimes there can be conflict from what I've heard with who gets billed for what Medicaid should be second. And then it gets a, a bigger mess if someone's military and it's TRICARE because both of them try to go secondary, you know, Medicaid and, <laughs> um, and, and TRICARE. Um, but I mean, I would always keep a child on it. And, you know, like if you have co-pays and you have, um, yeah, if you have co-pays, I think a lot of times if you have double insurance for the child, you may not have those co-pays, which doesn't hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I mean, the other the other hard part with like the, the therapy, the counseling stuff is sometimes the best of those folks don't take Medicaid. You know, there's definitely some attachment therapists out there that are wonderful, just what the child needs, but you got to pay out of pocket for, um, mm-hmm. you know. That's... Well, and that's where, in theory, where the adoption subsidy would come in. Yep. Uh, that uh, because, you're, yeah, you're right, uh, particularly some of the mental health providers uh, don't. Uh, you're, you, had at, you, you had a great segue for me uh, in, <laughs> for our next question, which was, if you've got Medicaid and TRICARE, is that uh, which, one, uh, which one takes the lead? I don't remember. I think it might be Medicaid, but I'm not sure. I would talk with okay. I would talk with the military people because they'll they're probably they're probably more experienced with the intersection than Medicaid people. You know, yeah, and you've got a better contact. Yeah, There's humans at the end of that phone call. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's what you would do if you're in the military and you have Tricare and you have a question on how it intersects with uh, Medicaid. Uh, contact the your, the your milica- military rep who who you usually ask your questions about Tricare too. Okay, all right. What type of other things might be included in adoption assistance, kind of in generally? And the one that's coming to mind is, in my mind, uh, is uh, college tuition uh, discounts or, or waivers for state schools. Uh, not all states do it, but some do. Um, how many, I mean, is that, a, is that becoming more common, less common? I don't think it's becoming more common. Um, but it's, it's definitely out there. Um, Texas, Florida, Massachusetts, Connecticut have really good programs. Kentucky too. Um, Maryland and Virginia are a little more limited. And those are the ones I can think of off the top of my head. There are some other programs. I think Oklahoma has something, but I can't remember how it works. It's a little different than like Texas and Florida, they have a tuition waiver program. So if the kids adopted from the foster care system, so those, all these kids who might qualify for adoption assistance through, you know, being SSI eligible, they're not going to qualify because this is for kids that were in the state care. Um, And what those states do is they, um, you know, you have to look each specific one because they all work a little differently, but they waive the fees and tuitions for going to um, colleges, um, public state colleges or universities in those states and usually include community colleges also. Mm-hmm. And, and if you adopt a child from another state, the subsidy is being paid by the state that had custody of the child that you adopted. Um, you live in uh, Virginia and you adopt a child in West Virginia. Um, West Virginia would be paying the subsidy. What about for college, though? Um, well, the kid wasn't. Virginia. You got to reverse yeah. it. But yeah, yeah. I mean, the yeah, hard, the hard, yeah. yeah, I mean, like, you know, I was talking last week to someone who lives in Georgia, adopted a kid from Florida. It's like, yes. It, you the the kid will have the Florida tuition waiver program, but they have to go back to Florida and go to a Florida state school. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. There's no no one has reciprocity. The only one that I've seen is Connecticut, and I, I have to do a little digging on it, but I just don't get any calls. It looks like theirs may work outside of Connecticut, but I'm not entirely sure. They're the only one that looks like it might work for not Connecticut schools. Um, wow. And Kentucky, I know this one specifically, they will waive the in-state tuition fees, 
But if I live, you know, in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I want my kid to go to some school across the river in Covington and I get the tuition waiver, I'm an out-of-state student. I got to pay the difference between the out-state and in-state rate. The in-state part gets covered with the waiver, but the difference I would have to pay for. It, you know, when you said at the beginning it's complicated? Yeah, it's yeah. complicated. Uh-huh. Uh, but What's it's not crazy is this is all in my brain. That's the, the craziest part. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Josh, I wouldn't want to be in your brain. <laughs> Let me add, add one more thing, because we talked about the state programs. There are two federal programs that apply to kids adopted from foster care in any state, regardless of whether they have a tuition waiver program or not. So kids who are adopted at age 13 or older, basically were in foster care, can apply as an independent student on their FAFSA form. So that free application for federal student aid, they would not have to put parental income. And then kids who are in foster care at age 16 and older, but still adopted, they can apply for education and training voucher funds um, through the independent living program. And that's available to them because they were in foster care at age 16 or older. So those are going to apply in any state. I don't know how ETV, the education training fund works. If you're across state lines, you know, if you've been adopted from the state you were in foster care in. Um, but the the free application to student federal student aid as an independent student shouldn't be a big problem um, no matter where you are. But those are two other programs that are um, available for kids adopted anywhere in the country at older ages from foster care. And both are, are big deals because, for example, the FAFSA, if it's the child's income, the child may well have zero income. Um, and if they have much from, you know, flipping burgers at uh, McDonald's, it still wouldn't be a lot. Um, so the percentage, and it's not, oftentimes it's grants, not loans. So um, for, especially for, you know, you'd have a higher percentage of grants, not loans. So that's something to, um, to certainly consider at that point. Okay, excellent. Let me pause here to remind you that this show is brought to you by the support of our partners. And these are agencies that believe in our mission of providing unbiased, accurate information uh, to both pre- and post-adoptive families. Two of our wonderful partners are Children's Connection. They're an adoption agency providing services for domestic infant adoption and embryo donation and adoption throughout the U.S., as well as providing home studies and post-adoption support to families in Texas. We also have Spence Chapin. They are a licensed and accredited nonprofit organization in the New York City metro area that has been offering adoption services for more than, wait for it, 100 years. That's amazing. Their robust post-adoption services provides birth parents, adoptive parents, and adoptee a supportive community and a connection to professionals. Uh, so we thank our partners for making this show a possible. So thank you. How can people get information about what their state usually grants for adoption subsidies, as well as what their state does as far as um, college tuition and uh, Medicaid and all of that? Um, we've, you've mentioned the uh, NACAC, N-A-C-A-C dot org, North, America, North American Council on Adoptable Children dot org. Um, it's a wonderful resource. So we mentioned that. What else? Where else can people get information? Um, I mean, the childwelfare.gov does have a more limited profile. Um, so they have some information. Um, you can check your state websites. They sometimes are really great and sometimes like, okay, <laughs> there's t- yeah, I can't exactly. figure anything else here. I mean, children, families who are adopting, who are doing the foster to adopt program are probably getting a basic overview of the program when they're going through the process. Um, obviously, if I'm going through the process in my state and I'm not getting a placement that I'm interested in, I start looking broader like on Adopt US Kids website or, you know, Northwest Adoption Exchange or someone else's, um, I might not have much background on what that state does of a child I'm interested in, and I'm going to need to do some research. But, um, you know, our, our website 
is is pretty well designed our our surveys to answer the questions that we think because we talk to thousands and tens of thousands of people that families are really looking for. Yeah, Matt, it's an excellent resource. I agree. Um, so, what should a parents what should parents do if they believe that the adoption subsidy that's being offered is not enough? It's going to depend on why they think that. If they think my child should qualify, for, like if I'm here in Minnesota, where we, you know, outside of our structural issue for the kids under six at permanency, if I think that my child um, assessment didn't include some things that, you know, ended up with a lower assessment, I'm going to want to see what the rules on doing an assessment. And if the agreement is done and executed, I'm going to have to wait six months until after finalization to get a reassessment. If it's not executed, but, it, you know, it's been proposed, I could ask for a, a reevaluation at the time. But if I'm in like Ohio and my county is offering 250, but I was getting 800 a month in, a, in foster care, um, then it's a different issue of trying to say what the needs are and, and advocating in the negotiation process. So it really, it depends, <laughs> like, like everything here, it depends on the situation. Um, I mean, the one thing I will say is I probably answer around a thousand calls a year on this and do some trainings. So people can call me because I know how the states work um, and can give tips specific to their state or what's going on. And if I don't, we do have volunteers in quite a few states who often know some things that I don't know um, about those specific states because trying to track 50 states is a bit of work and keep it all in my brain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to suggest you get a computer, you know? <laughs> well, I have that too, but I, I do have a lot in my brain. Like, I, I'm not checking any notes in everything I'm telling you today. Yeah, I believe that, actually. Yeah. Um, so, uh, how would people reach you? Um, they can call us uh, toll free, 800 and we've got a new phone system, so my extension has changed since the last time. Um, it's 115. So it's 800-470-6665, extension 115. Or my email is joshk, J-O-S-H-K, at NACAC, N-A-C-A-C dot org. And if you call here, you forget the extension, you talk about subsidy, they will quickly get you to me. <laughs> <If I'm> in, <laughs> unless I've gone for like vacation or something. Um, those calls, no one else is going to try and No one them, wants so. those calls. They're going to say, yeah, don't worry. They will go to you. Well, no. Other, we, we have some other staff that will help, but this is, I'm the coordinator for a reason and it's my primary job. So how is residential treatment covered? Let's assume that I know it's oh. it's the it's the thing that is it's the boogaboo. I mean, it's the thing that we that that we hear probably some of the most questions about. So, how is residential treatment covered? You've got a child who is really struggling, and uh, either you've made the decision, or doctors have made the decision, and your family is drowning, and residential treatment is being considered. What then? Um. You got to talk to whatever government agency is in your area um, where you live. Um, you might, if you have adoption subsidy from another state, you might talk to them. And everybody does it a little different. But most states, um, most states, if they're doing it um, in any way, shape, or form, uh, Medicaid's going to be part of it. But you might get Department of Mental Health. Um, you're you're going to be talking about trying to get various funding streams to help cover the placement. Um, and you're probably, the state will probably try and go after the adoption subsidy um, by seeking child support. They're not going to cut it off. You don't want it to be cut off because if they cut it off, um, unless it's a suspend, um, it's just going to create problems later, especially if the child can get better and be reunified. Um, so. It's, I mean, it's one of those things I'm happy to talk with folks on and share what I've heard about the, what your state has done. If, if 
med- if you've got Medicaid for the child, which you should, um, if you have Medicaid for the child and Medicaid saying they're not going to help at all with finding anything. And the hard part is, you know, sometimes Medicaid will help with a placement, but you don't feel the placements meet the needs of the child and won't really help. Um, mm-hmm. That is a different battle. But there's a group that helps fight for people with disabilities. There's a chapter in every state. Um, and they're either called Disability Rights or Protection and Advocacy. And you can find your state chapter on the N as in Nancy, D as in David, R as in Ronald, N as in Nancy, um, dot org website, the National Disability Rights Network. Um, mm-hmm. And that that's a way to help work with an organization to do that. One of the California is weird. They can make the adoption subsidy for up to 18 months, go up to like seven, $8,000. I don't get it. It creates a problem with families who adopted from other states living in California and trying to get help because they, their solution is a little different. Um, but generally, it's trying to look at what sort of services in talking with broader, you know, take off the adoption blinders, see what other community resources, what mental health resources might help. Don't think the child welfare system is the only resource to solve this problem. Um, The other issue, you probably hear this little too, and this is, I don't have a great answer to this um, other than trying to get states to change their laws, is what happens if the facility says, we can't do anymore. This child is not progressing we're going to return the child and you feel that child is still not safe to come back in your home, like could actually harm family members. Um, you know, and the family says, we're not going to take the child back. And then does the state pursue abandonment or neglect charges against the adoptive family who would otherwise be charged with endangering another child in the family if they took the child home? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's a catch 22 that I don't have an answer for. Um, but you know, we might have resources or connections in the state that might mm-hmm. be able to help families navigate that situation. Um, I will say that it, it it is certainly being discussed now, certainly more than it was even five years ago. Um, so it's, I think most people are aware that, that it's a, I guess this is, to put it mildly, a conundrum, um, that it is that catch-22 that parents are caught in. So, um yeah, contact the agency uh, from whom you adopted and start working there. Um, and that would be the first stop for that. So what all do you think will change with the implementation of the Families First Act, uh, both about subsidies as also, and also about post-adoption services in general? So let's start first about Families First and, and if, if it has any impact not just subsidies, but subsidies, uh, Medicaid, college, the whole thing. I'm not sure. I'm not as versed uh, in the Families First Act. Sorry to say that's been more uh, my boss, Mary Boo. I mean, I know the biggest impact was it rolled back the applicable age. You know, I said was two. It got down to zero and came back to two. That's the biggest change that's directly impacted adoption subsidy. Um, NACAC is always... Um, been a huge proponent of post-adoption services because a check is nice. A check can really help make a difference, but a lot of check, times that check is not even close to enough. Um, and and sometimes it's not even, you know, like helping cover the cost of residential treatment, which usually that adoption subsidy not going to come close to, but also not feeling isolated and alone in the world. Um, you know, there are parents I've talked to who I don't feel like I helped at all, but when they told me their story and they knew that I understood and like, didn't say they were crazy that like this happens to other people that I think relieved them a little bit. Um, So we do a lot with parent support groups, but also like, can families get respite? I mean, respite is huge because families need a break, especially with children with extreme behavioral issues, but also other times too. Um, but I don't know all the funding streams. I think, did it do more dedicated funding for post-adopt? Did it say that a certain percentage had to be in? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. It does. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. It, so the expectation is that there will be more money going to uh, post-adoption uh, for for certain. That's the, uh, in fact, there's, I think, a requirement that a 
a set percentage of adoption assistance money has to go to post adoption, and it can be used by families, uh, by adoptive families. Yeah. It can also be some of the services can also, of course, be used by by birth families. Okay. Yeah, I mean the one well, thing the one thing is yes, there is one of the things is if we can get to states, and the hard part is if, if we can get information about dissolved adoptions or these residential treatments is. Um, family preservation services that can be u- can be used to help keep adoptions together when they're strained. I mean that that is something. Mm-hmm. But the key is how do I mean for listeners? It's like what is your state doing? Do you know? Probably not. Are you involved with organizations that are going to help focus how the state? does that because if you don't that money's probably going to be spent before you even might try and access it you know big part mm-hmm. of advocacy is being at the table when they start divvying up the money um mm-hmm. not <laughs> like oh they're getting money what are let's start talking who do we talk to about this um yeah you're exactly right yeah. and so that's that's all going to be coming down the pike in the next year or so so yeah. excellent Well, thank you so much, Josh Grohl, for being with us today to talk about adoption subsidies for adoptions primarily through foster care. Uh, As always, the views expressed in this show are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. And keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice to understand how it applies to your specific situation. You need to work with your adoption professional. I am sure everybody is going to want to uh, contact Josh to get more information. And uh, the website is NACAC, N-A-C-A-C dot org. Or as he pointed out, you can uh, uh, email him directly at Josh K at NACAC dot org. Thank you so much for being with us today. And I will see you next week.